Thanks, Ryan, and thank you all for coming, and thanks for for having me here. I uh, I haven't been in Johnson for 30 years. Um, I don't really want to admit that I'm that old, but uh, so many places in that amount of time have been totally destroyed and unrecognizable as uh, what they once were. And, I mean, you know, this has changed a little bit, but in kind of a good way. It's really nice to be back. Um, and when I get done pouring water on myself, I am going to read from a, a novel called Behind the Moon. And uh, this book was written in a, it's, uh, it's kind of a strange book. It's, uh, it, when people ask me to describe it, I found I couldn't do it. I, the only thing I could say is it's like the Golux's hat out of James Thurber's The Thirteen Clocks in the sense that it can't be described. Uh, you can imagine how su successful uh, <laughs> such an artifact is for marketing purposes. It was, uh, it was written in the spirit of just because people don't like what I'm doing doesn't mean I'm going to stop, and, uh, which I thought might have resonance with a few people here, possibly. Uh, all of that's just patter you don't have to listen to, but this part you should really pay attention because it is important. If you feel in the course of a reading that you have had a stroke or some kind of unfortunate cerebral event, it's not you, it's me. And the effect will be temporary and it will pass when the reading is over, you will no longer have these symptoms. <laughs> the eye was on her first, the first thing she knew a brown eye with sickles of a yellow gleam around the edges of the iris. Attentive, indifferent, did it even see her? She could not see any part of herself, only the eye that seemed to regard her with a kind of warmth she felt, but she was still wondering if it saw her at all and not at all sure that she wanted it to. She couldn't feel her body in the dark, and she thought of being frightened by that, but it was just a thought, not fear. She remembered not long before she had been truly frightened, but she didn't remember any more than the sensation. Where did the light come from in which she saw the bear? It was so, so dark at the bottom of the, of the shaft, a sort of shaft, maybe, she had fallen into it. Maybe. She didn't remember that either, there was no pain. Now the bear's whole head organized itself around the golden brown eye. There the dark muzzle, damp nostrils, a head of white teeth and red tongue. There was another eye, but hidden under the heavy, hairy bone of the brow, and turned a little into the stone, as if it had not yet come out of the stone. Maybe it was only a, a trick of a few deaf lines, streaks of hematite and ochre that made the bear appear in her mind, cunningly stroked across a natural contour of the rock. Yet she could feel the warm ebb and flow of the bear's breath across her face. It was that near. Could hear the grumbling of its breath. 
the big shoulder and the high humped back of a grizzly coming out and upon her as if through a fissure of the rock, emerging as if the stone was water, a grizzly. She should have been afraid, but this, this creature was older by hundreds, no, thousands of years. And the eye was like her own, she knew, and she was seeing with the same eye that saw her. A bright white light bore down on her, piercing like a laser or a diamond. Julie, Julie. The voice hauled on her, dragged at her. She knew it. Did she, had she loved it once upon a time? Julie, what happened? Julie. The voice wanted her to come out of the cave. She would not come. In the yellowish gleam of her mind's eye, she saw herself among them, five of them on three motorcycles raising red dust as they came across the desert floor toward the rock shelters. She would have liked to ride with Jamal, but he had the smallest, lightest bike, hardly more than a scooter, really, and Marco had urged her up behind him while Karen and Sonny rode together, and Marco roared out in the lead. Julie sat with her legs uneasily forked around the squat muscles of Marco's back, and now and then he looked over his shoulder at her in a greedy way she didn't like, but she liked the rush of air in her face and the way her long black hair streamed in the wind from under the band of a turned-around ball cap she was wearing. None of them had helmets. To savor the speed, she closed her eyes. A picture appeared, a tousled-headed little girl in a calico dress riding behind her father on a bicycle, reaching for some object of desire. Rambler roses twined through pickets of a fence the bicycle passed on Julie's block back in the springtime. The little girl could never quite get her fingers to touch a rose, but whenever she reached the rear wheel of the bi bicycle wobbled, and the father, unaware of the cause, bent more sternly into his pedaling. Don't do that. Marco's voice cutting through the snarl of the engine. You'll dump us. Julie started out of her reverie had she herself reached for something. There was nothing nearby. They were crossing a long, wide flat of the desert, and the nearest hillocks of painted sand looked halfway to the horizon. Sonny pulled level with them, the drone of his engine beating with Marco's. Karen's face smooshed out against his leather back, her mouth a little open, moist, like a sleeping mouth that breathed against a pillow. Sonny shrugged his near shoulder, rolled the throttle with a faint smile. He pulled ahead, and Marco tilted into the right of his tailpipe. In the roar of the bigger engines, Julie couldn't catch any hint of Jamal's smaller one. She tried to look back to see where he was, but she couldn't turn her head far enough without unbalancing the ride. Now they were coming into the long shadow of the cliffs where the rock shelters were. Marco swung the heavy bike in a long curve that brought them out into the sunlight again, beside a boulder where Sonny had stopped. He put his heel down and cut the motor. In the quick shock of silence, Julie thought she heard the cry of a hawk overhead. She looked up, blinking into the sun, which was still high. There would be several hours of daylight yet, and she thought it must be 3 or 3.30. Buzzers would be ringing to let her out of school if she hadn't skipped. Karen, who might have been thinking a similar thought, 
gave her a complicit smile as she swung her leg clear of the saddle of Sonny's bike. Hastily, Julie scrambled down herself. Her legs felt rubbery from the long, shuddering ride. She took a few backward steps away from the others and turned to look in the direction they come from. With a distant, crickety sound, Jamal's smaller bike persisted toward them, leading a plume of reddish dust, his hair in a cloud around the triangle of his face. Sunlight winked from a yellow lens of his wraparound. Rice burner, Sonny said, and turned to spit skull bandages in the sand. Marco winked at Sonny, then pulled a bandana from his head and used it to wipe grit from his face. That's a spaghetti burner, dude, he said, and ground a slant at Julie, pushing back the inky waves of his hair. He'll get here someday, won't he, Marco said. White teeth. Now the light of the eye had extinguished, but she saw instead a pattern of dots, an umber and ochre splayed over a hump of the cave stone, dividing into two bands like a tree trunk forking, like branches in a stream. The pattern swirled and scattered, and for a time there was just darkness. She could feel an object in her hand, curved like a shell. It must be her phone. If she turned it on, there would be light, if it turned on. Away on the surface, in the rose-colored dusk, the moon had appeared before the sun quite set, a wafer frayed on the edges like lace and pale to near transparency against the deepening blue of the sky. Jamal said one of those weird things that charmed her, I wonder what it's like behind the moon. The bikes ticked slightly as they cooled beside the boulder. Jamal had pushed up his yellow sunglasses to investigate his saddlebags. Karen frowned into the screen of her cell phone. A ghost of its light flickered on her face. Sonny ran his blunt fingers down her spine into her waistband, and Karen elbowed him and wriggled away. Of course, no signal, Sonny said. What else did we come here for? Marco pulled a clear bottle full of bright violet fluid from his inside jacket pocket and tossed it to Sonny, who had to stoop to catch it. Bad throw. Straightening, Sonny uncapped the bottle and passed it to Karen, who took a gulp without looking, still fidgeting with her phone. When she had registered the taste, she pushed the folded phone into her tight front pocket and reached for the bottle again. Then Sonny offered the bottle to Julie. Julie shook her head. It's all right, she said. I've got water. You need your vitamins, Marco said. She could feel him looking at her. She didn't look back. Jamal was laying out components of a small dome tent on the sand beside his silvery blue Vespa. Julie watched him, his long fingers shaking out the section pole so that the elastic cord snapped him together at full length. She picked up one of the poles and flexed the fiberglass. Here, Jamal said, you thread it this way. Marco bent over his heavy black and silver Harley, unloading from the leather saddlebags, trail mix and MREs, a much, much bigger tent kit, a small vinyl case which he unzipped to reveal a sleek little video palm quarter. Well, said Karen, cool camera, where'd you get that? Ultimo. For a moment, Marco caught her in the camera's steely eye. Julie watched Karen playing up, shifting the rounded weights of her body, tossing her honey-streaked hair back and exposing a white line of her throat. Okay, let me see, Karen said. 
Marco held the camera away from her, made her reach for it across his body, then let her have it. Geez, Karen said, high res, huh? Her fingernail jabbed at the tiny buttons. Look how you can zoom in on that. Look, Julie, I can see all down in my pores. Gross, Julie thought, but she was helping Jamal with the tent, capturing the poles at the corner so Jamal could slip the floor pins into them. The tent was autonomous, a freestanding hemisphere, and for some reason she pictured the other half that would make it whole, existing somehow like a reflection beneath the sand. Jamal stood back, resting his knuckles on his narrow hips, and in the next moment a gust of wind caught the tent and whirled it end over end across the sand toward the horizon. Jamal stopped frozen for a beat before he took off after it, and Julie, by instinct, ran after him, but the wind was faster than both of them. They would never have caught the tent if it hadn't died down. Jamal seized the poles where they crossed at the top, then doubled over, winded by the 200-yard dash. Julie trotted up, gasping herself, and laid one hand on the curve of a tent pole. Back by the boulder, under the cliff, the others were capering and slapping their knees, their faces twisting with inaudible laughter. Shit, Jamal said, running a finger along a four-inch tear in the netting of one of the side windows. No biggie, Julie said. There's no bugs out here anyway. Jamal looked at her thoughtfully, then nodded as if they'd made a deal. Then he picked up the tent like a briefcase and started back toward the cliff. Need help, said Julie. Jamal shrugged. It doesn't weigh anything. But then the wind gusted up again, and Julie had to catch the other side of the tent to steady it. Pegs won't hold in this loose sand, Sonny said when they had come back. Tell me about it, said Jamal. We'll have to get rocks and weight it down. What, inside, Julie said? Of course, inside, Jamal said. Hold this a minute. Jamal's tent would barely hold two people, and that was without any rocks inside it. There were two tents. Julie had not thought about how that part would work out, and she decided not to think about it now, holding the tent in place while Jamal looked for rocks. The cell phone screen shed a pale luminescence on her, a pale glowing rectangle-like light caught in a mirror. It contained no image and no word. At first it seemed that she looked down into it, holding it cupped in the palm of her hand. But in the dark of the cave there seemed to be no gravity, so this cup of light might just as well have been beside her or above, and possibly distant like that frayed wafer of daylight moon fading into the black of the night sky. Rice burner. Sonny smirked, turned his head sideways to spit skull bandages in the sand. Jamal straightened from the tent he was assembling, rested his light knuckles on the black waistband of his jeans. You dissing my machine, yo? No, man, Sonny said, I wouldn't do that. He turned to offer Julie the garnet-colored bottle. Here you go, girl, cut the dust. Jamal stooped over the parts of his tent. Karen was mugging for Marco's camera, striking a series of runway poses, chin up, wrist cocked to the ear, giggling into it, ooh la la. A slight heaviness in her movement made Julie wonder if Karen might have had a shot or two before they started. Not that she'd mind a buzz herself, but then she wasn't a complete idiot. Dehydration was an issue out here, and Julie had one liter of water for herself. She didn't quite know what the others had brought. 
Marco ducked and weaved like a paparazzo, pursuing Karen with his camera's steel loop as Julie took a small sip from the red glowing bottle. There was no bite of vodka or gin, just vitamin water, something like that. She took a larger swallow and handed the bottle back to Sonny. Karen was play fighting Marco for the camera, gimme, gimme, let me see, and Marco held it high over her head, making her stretch for it. Her t-shirt hem rode high and the gold of her navel stud winked in the sun. Damn, don't break it, Marco said. He let her have the camera. Karen gathered it toward her cleavage, wiping her dirty blonde hair from her face as she peered into the bright digital screen. Her chipped black fingernails clicked on the camera's tiny buttons. Look at Julie, Karen said. You can practically zoom right down your own throat. Gross, Julie said absently. She was admiring the tent, which Jamal had just finished assembling. A silver-gray hemisphere sealed into the sand. Something in the shape of it appealed to her. Sonny cracked a beer and gave it to her. Where had he found that? Two slightly sweating, soft vinyl coolers had appeared be beside the pair of Harleys. Sonny pulled out two more beers and dragged the coolers into the shade. Don't be dumping that ice, Marco said. Huh, said Sonny, I ain't drinking it, not out of there. We can cook with it, Marco said. We got a pack of freeze-dried stuff. Are we Boy Scouts or what, Sonny said. And Karen laughed, elbowed him, let her blonde head roll back against the warm stone of the boulder. Jamal fired his little stone pipe and sent it round among the others. Julie took the weakest possible hit, then left the circle before the bowl could come to her again. She didn't want to get too high too early. Maybe at night, when the stars came out, when sleep would be soon to come. The business of the tents would be all sorted out by then, but she didn't want to think about it now. There was a voice in her head that said, be careful, and she especially didn't want voices to start splitting off and talking to her from somewhere else. The shadow from the cliff wall had now grown maybe six feet long, and Julie walked into it, feeling perhaps she could disappear into it. She sat down, cross-legged, in a niche of the vertically channeled stone. From here, the orb of the tent seemed an object of contemplation, like a meteorite that had embedded itself there, and she imagined the other half of the sphere it described, twinning with it beneath the sand. The stone behind her was still radiating warmth, like the walls of an oven from the sun that had been shining on it for most of the day. Trippy weed Jamal had, she reminded herself to go slow with that, lifting her arms and setting her palms together in a mudra above her head. As her palms touched, she felt a spreading warmth below her navel, much stronger than she'd ever been able to get in her half-hearted attempts to practice yoga. A tingle across the smooth-shaved skin of her bare armpits. The tent rippled as a light breeze sh shivered over it. Jamal was studying her with the foxy gray eyes behind his yellow lenses in a way that made her feel no one else could see her, even though the others were all there. On his cat-shaped, sallow face, the buggy glasses made him look like pictures of, pictures of a space alien sometimes. The jewel in the lotus, Jamal said, funny, but it wasn't a joke. The wind came up and snatched the tent which flew away across the plain of sand, sometimes skating on its flat bottom, sometimes rolling end over end. 
The others were laughing, watching Jamal caper after the tent. Every time he almost caught it, the wind would pull it just out of his reach. Julie was running like you can run in dreams, with a deep, springing, effortless movement, breathing as evenly as in sleep. That was trippy weed for sure. They captured the tent at last and held it still between them. Rippling in the remains of the breeze, the silvery fabric glimmered like snakeskin, and Julie still felt that warmth in her belly, spreading like the onset of happiness. The pattern of dots billowed toward her, stretching and pocketing over the roll in the stone wall, which had been the grisly shoulder and hump of the bear. Or maybe Julie had moved somehow and was now in a different part of the passage. She didn't know how she could have moved because she couldn't feel her body, although she remembered that not long ago she had felt the cool curve of her cell phone fitting into the cupped palm of her hand. She watched the pattern. It seemed important somehow to grasp it. It was a pattern in four dimensions. In her mind, she heard these words like they were spoken by a voiceover in a movie. But she was seeing it only in three. Umber, ochre, now a near scarlet red, and there were three spirals swirling around each other, a triple helix, the dots drawn toward each other but never quite touching, as though a magnetic energy that held them together held them a certain distance apart. For a moment, she was inside the particles of color, as if she were standing under rain. She followed Jamal up the ledge that led to the first rock shelter. He climbed magnetically, as if he had suckers on his fingers and toes, his limbs elongated like an insect's, and his head looked outsized on the slim body, maybe because of his big cloud of hair. Where the ledge leveled out to a wider shelf, there was a vast overhang, three stories high, with a few trails of vine hanging from its upper lip. Because the overhang blocked the setting sun, it was suddenly almost cold. Julie wrapped her arms around herself. She left her jacket with the bikes. On the inside wall, there were tags spray-painted by other kids come out from the city, fat, cushiony 3D letters smushed together like marshmallows crushed in the bag. Jamal pulled a plastic trash bag from his pocket and methodically began to scour up beer cans from the area. After a moment, Julie shook off her chill and helped him. There were chip bags and candy wrappers, too. Now what? Jamal opened a crooked smile, hefting the three-quarters full bag. Julie shrugged and walked to the outside edge. Away below and to the left, Sonny and Marco were anchoring poles for an umbrella tent. It would be as big as a room in a regular house when they were done. Karen had scrambled to the top of the boulder and lay on her back on an Indian blanket, her white forearm shielding her eyes from the rays of the declining sun. Julie pictured the turbulence that would follow if she or Jamal dropped a trash bag. Nah, Jamal said, the bikes won't carry it. We'll be doing well to come out with what we brought in. Julie turned toward the inner wall. At one end of a puffy chain of tagging, there was a narrow, dark slit in the rock. In there? Jamal shook his head. You ever think how you can't throw anything away? I mean, you can throw it, but it doesn't go away. Now Julie was conscious of herself shrugging. 
I guess so, she said, which seemed equally hapless. Still carrying the bag by its closed throat, Jamal walked toward the rock shelter wall. Wiggers, he said, shaking his head as he read the tags left to right, stopping where the opening pierced the stone. Julie stood a step behind him. You ever go in there, she said. No thanks, said Jamal. I don't like tight places. Julie looked into the gap in the stone. It looked a flat black as if painted on the surface like the tags, as if, after all, there was no interior. She would have had to stoop just a little and turn sideways to get into it. Jamal was almost a head taller than her, but so skinny he might have folded himself up so he would also fit. He set the bag down and touched her shoulder with a fingertip. The touch felt faintly electric through the cotton of her top. Come on, Jamal said, let's go find the sun. Seeming somehow to know her way despite the utter darkness, she moved a little distance along the passage, then turned back. It wasn't so completely dark after all because there was the light of a cell phone screen behind her now, its bluish white unnatural luminescence spreading from the cupped hand of the girl where she lay. The light went out, but the battery would not have died yet. The screen shut down to conserve the battery. She thought of turning the phone on again, and yes, the thumb must have pressed a button, for the light reappeared, and now she could see how the body lay where it had fallen, half on its back and half on its side, knees drawn up, the pale face turned sideways, eyes closed now. On the rock where the head rested, there was more darkness flowing out than Julie had dark hair. Surely this was Julie's body, but she was not inside that body now. Would the blood smell attract the bear? But the bear was an illusion. It was painted on the wall. And then there was something else painted there, or not, something she saw now or had seen, a swirl of bright specks and spirals like a cyclone, or the image of a broad-bladed, fleshy leaf which bulged and rippled in the rising wind. The light of the phone screen shut down again. She turned away from it and continued along the passage, careful not to brush the wall on either side. She seemed to know where the walls were, although she couldn't see them. The freshness and sense of movement in the air was receding behind her. Ahead of her, the black atmosphere felt increasingly closed, yet it was important that she continue to move deeper into the cave. Ascending more gradually now, the ledge wrapped around the cliff wall to the north. At a narrow place where Julie hesitated, Jamal reached back to help her along, and then they had come out into the warmth of the sunlight. Jamal let go of her wrists and turned toward the lowering sun, raising one hand to shade his eyes inside the yellow goggles. On this side of the cliff, the horizontally striped stone hills were densely grouped together, with shallow, dry canyons snaking in between them. The first phase of the sunset picked the landscape out in bands of turquoise and rose. Wow, said Julie, we could be on the moon. Except, Jamal pointed to the horizon, a glint of reflection from a car window as the vehicle turned a loop in a band of blacktop. It was too far away to hear the motor, and when the car turned out of sight, Julie couldn't even pick out the thread of highway anymore. 
The whole desert valley resonated with an airy silence. Then squeaking like a hamster in distress, and it grew louder, but there couldn't be a hamster in midair. From below the lip of the ledge where they stood, the beating wings of a hawk came into view, flogging the air as it flew to a perch on a crag a dozen yards away. Julie pulled out her phone to take a picture, but felt Jamal's warm palm again on her forearm. Don't, Jamal said, just watch it. The hawk tightened its talons, and the squeaking abruptly stopped. Julie didn't know if she wanted to watch, and she wanted to ask what the hawk had caught, but how would Jamal know better than she? It couldn't be a hamster, of course, and it was bigger than a mouse and furry. A prairie dog. Did they have those here? She watched the hard, bright eye of the hawk as the curved beak dipped, cut, and penetrated, then raised a quivering strip of bleeding meat. There was something dreadful about it, and yet... They're not cruel, Jamal said, as if he'd read the half-formed notion from her mind. They're just not on our program. You ever think how you can't throw anything away? I mean, you can throw it. Jamal shook his head, but it doesn't go away. Still carrying the bag of litter by its closed throat, Jamal walked toward the rock shelter wall. With a faint clatter of beer cans, he set the bag down and raised a crooked forefinger as he scanned the painted tags from left to right. Freaking wiggers, he said. Julie didn't quite know what he meant by that. Jamal was scanning left to right. Then his head stopped moving. What, Julie said. Yeah, Jamal said, come here. You can only see him at just the right angle. Depends on the light. Julie put her head near his, and then she saw it, an image shallowly etched in the stone just to the left of a dark opening that went who knows where. A round, shapeless body like a small child might draw, stick legs running, an antlered head. If not for the head, the petroglyph reminded her of paramecia she had watched through a microscope in ninth grade biology class. Jamal had been one of her lab partners then, and they had taken turns lowering their heads to the black ring of a upper lens. Who did this, she said. Brule. Jamal's voice went guttural as he said it. What's that mean? Burnt Indian, Jamal said. No, but they didn't do it. I'm just blowing smoke. These things are way older than those guys. Julie felt her bare arms stippling up in goose flesh. It was cool here in the shadow of the rock shelter, and a current of colder air seemed to come out of a slit in the stone wall. Jamal crouched over his heels, a finger tracing. There's more down here, I think. There were, but you can't see much of them now, under the tags. That's awful, Julie said. Jamal squinted up at her. What? She saw his eyes floating in the yellow bubbles of his lenses. Julie shrugged. Kids tagging all over, something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Jamal straightened and took a backward step, still looking at the wall. Something else will come along and cover all this up too, don't you think? Julie looked down to her knee level. On the stone was spray-painted the letters CHAOS in the lurid red and purple colors of a bruise, a tag for a gang Marco and Sonny had belonged to in high school, probably four or five years old. There was indeed something under it, the pattern Jamal's fingertip had followed. Her eye could not make out what it was. Jamal caught her right hand with his left, 
pulling out her forefinger as if it were a pencil. As he guided her finger over the stone, she felt she was beginning to read the image, but the glimmer of understanding spooked her for some reason. She giggled to disguise the feeling, pulled her hand away from Jamal, and took a long step back from the wall. A butterfly lit on the peak of A in chaos. Its wings stirred the air, an iridescent, heavenly blue. Julie shivered as the butterfly flew. Hey, you're getting too cold, Jamal said. He threw an arm over her shoulder, bumping her clumsily into his ribs. Come on, let's go find the sun. The hawk finished eating, shrugged its feathers into a ruff around its neck. Its head pushed back and it shrieked once before it flew. The sharp, harsh sound thrust out of the open beak like a blade. It seemed to linger once the hawk had flown, its cross-shaped shadow briefly stroking over the turning of the canyon below the ledge. Julie shuddered. It bother you? She turned to find Jamal's face nearer to hers than she had realized, his own nose a bit hawkish, really. But he had taken off his wraparounds and the brown of his eyes was warm. I don't know, Julie said, not knowing if she wanted him to come nearer. If he did come nearer, their faces would touch. At the base of her neck, she felt the faint warmth of a setting sun. To the left of Jamal's curly head was the frail, laced round of a daylight moon. Julie turned away toward where the whatever it had been when the hawk had caught it wasn't much of anything now. A pattern of bones hanging loose in the remains of sinew, a stain of red fluid spread over the tone. Have you heard the bear tape? Julie's back was still to Jamal when she spoke. What? What are you talking about? Julie looked at him now. She had made him uncomfortable. Don't you know? That's no reason why you should. Jamal put the yellow wraparounds back on. What's making you think about it anyway? That, I guess. Julie tossed her head a little sulkily at what the hawk had left. Don't tell me if you don't want to then. Don't be like that. Jamal cut himself off. He leaned on his elbows, let his head drop back, till his longish dark curls grazed the stone they were sitting on. The white dusty moon and the reddening sun were there at opposite ends of the sky, with the space between them curved like a rainbow. Jamal sat up and shook his head as if to dissipate the sourness of their last exchange. I'll tell you if you want to know, he said. I guess it's even dumber not to. It's just... Jamal took off his glasses and looked at her again with that warmth. Karen talks about it? Karen? She could see the widening white around Jamal's eyes. I mean, she talks about Sonny and Marco talking about it. Right, said Jamal. I guess that figures. He looked away up toward the moon, then quickly back at her. Well, so there was this guy you might have heard who got a notion he could live with grizzly bears a long way from here. Off on the edge of the world, I guess. Somewhere you needed a ski plane to get there. A nut job, this guy, if I have to say it. Anyway, he kept going up to wherever it was to hang with the bears, whatever, and he would shoot video of all this, him and his bear buddies. And he talked this girl, a girlfriend, I guess, and going up there with him for a couple of weeks. Jamal dropped his head between his knees. That's the part I really don't get, why the girl played into this. She was good-looking, she seemed plenty smart, so why'd she go off in the boonies with this loser lunatic? You've seen this? 
Jamal so picked up his head and looked at Julie. You can rent it if you want. Some director got hold of the Nutjobs video and turned it into a docudrama. But the part you're talking about is not in that. The part I'm... Jamal began to hurry the story, words rattling together like cars on a speeding train. It went wrong one day with the bears, it seems, and, and the bears ate them, both of them. Then a few days later, a plane came in to take them out, and all they found was bones and the camera. That's the part you heard about. There's no picture, I guess, or not much picture, because the nutjob dropped the camera, and it's just getting pawed around in the weeds, but you can hear them. You can hear them screaming, and you can hear the bears. Julie's stomach shrunk to a cold, wavy kernel. You've heard this? Hell no, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear anything about it. I wouldn't have told you if you didn't ask. So it's my fault, Julie flared up, because I asked. I'm sorry. Jamal turned half toward her, put his hand on her shoulder again. The touch calmed her. It's not like I wanted to talk about it, but it seemed better to tell you than make some big mystery about it, which is what Sonny and Marco do, and then it gets a hold on you just because you don't know. Jamal looked off across the peaks and canyons, turned candy colors by the light of the setting sun. Sometimes I wonder if that's what hooked the girl in, some mysterious mojo the guy made up for her about his bears, something he didn't quite tell her. And Ultima's got this thing, this tape. I don't know what Ultima's got, Jamal snapped. Sorry, he squeezed her shoulder. Sonny and Marco say Ultima say, says if it exists, somebody wants to buy it, and as long as somebody will buy it, somebody will sell it. So maybe Ultima sells copies of the thing, like some kind of super snuff film or whatever. You know him, Ultimo? Julie felt the syllables of the name between her teeth with a faint, illicit thrill. If I see him coming, I recognize him. Jamal laughed briefly. Then I get on the other side of the street. He looked again at the road and remained smeared over the rock opposite. Okay, you're right. It is like the hawk. What do you mean, Julie said. Like the bears, you know, they were just being bears. It wasn't the bears. It was the people. Thanks.